Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism that is produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics and the Humanists, Atheists, and Agnostics of Manitoba. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links for all episodes can be found at lueepodcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. Welcome to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today we're going old school, and we have just a little bit of a news recap uh, for this week. Um, I'm joined tonight by one other panelist, uh, Jem Newman. Hi, folks. And, of course, myself, Greg Christensen. Hello, internets. So, I guess uh, news-wise, probably the thing that cluttered up my mini-feed most in the last week or two uh, was the giant debate between Bill Nye and Ken Ham. Oh, I don't think I heard about that. Oh, really? <laughs> did you, okay, all jokes aside, did you have time to sit down with a nice bowl of popcorn and a um, maybe a hot chocolate or something and watch the festivities? Uh, to be honest with you, no, I did not watch either the live stream or the uh, recording afterward, but I did read two live blogs, the one that Hemant was doing at Friendly Atheist and uh, PZ's live blog. And I also read a lot of recaps from people. Mm-hmm. Um, I Everything I read, I, I was planning to uh, listen to it after the fact, but everything that I've read had just gone on and on about how long it was and how uh, uh, how meandering it was. You know, it was it was, it was long. Uh, so I'm I'm sort of glad that I that I didn't actually end up watching it. I just read about it. How about you? Uh, I did watch it live. I uh, signed up for it ahead of time thinking that it was being put on by some sort of neutral party. Um, but, it, mm-hmm. you know, inadvertently, I gave my email address to Answers in Genesis. <laughs> Fun. So... Uh, what are your thoughts there, Greg? Since you're the one who watched it. Well... Uh, I mean, I, I have opinions, but uh, but let's, let's go with the more relevant opinions first. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. What I was kind of hoping for from Bill Nye was a, was a stump speech. Something that said, okay... You know, I was really, like, dream case scenario, Bill Nye goes first, and he gets to say something like, my opponent is going to try and tell you that there are two kinds of science, historical science and observational science. This is simply not true. Science works in such and such and such a way. And then the moment Bill N- uh, uh, Ken Ham, you know, with his charming accent, like, that's all he has is there's historical science, and, well, if that's already been, you know, uh, dealt with, he's going to look twice as stupid as he already is. Actually, he's probably, he's a very intelligent man. He just has some very silly beliefs. Um, but anyways, I, I was, I was kind of like screaming, you know, at, at the, at the laptop, um, although just in my head, um, because I kind of felt that Bill Nye was losing the rhetorical debate, right? I mean, that's one thing that I guess for people who have less rigor, scientific rigor in their, in their arguments and, and, uh, and beliefs, usually make up for that more than, you know, double or so or whatever in um, skill with rhetoric. Now, granted, after listening to Ken Ham say the exact same thing, he basically had it down to historical science. You weren't there. Oh, by the way, there's a book that chronicles all of history for the last 6,000 years. And uh, I'll admit that I learned something new about creationism that I didn't know before. Oh? Yeah. The the basis for their denial of 
science is that apparently prior to the fall, there was no sin. So if mm-hmm. dinosaurs were, well, at sin, comma, death, comma, pain, comma, suffering, etc., etc., etc. So if there was uh, fossilized dinosaurs that are millions of years old, therefore there must have been death prior to the 6,000-year chronology of the Bible, therefore the world must be 6,000 years old, and all of that history and science and observation and rigorous methodology that tells us the world is, or the Earth is 4.6-some billion years old, the solar system is 13 and change, or no, uh, the universe is 13 and change, etc., etc., etc. All of the stuff that the scientific method tells us must be false because the written record, uh, and I'm using air quotes now, only details the last 6,000 years. I thought, I didn't think it would be quite as, I'm trying to choose my word carefully, but sophisticated is that? Mm-hmm. I thought it would have been just sheer blind. The Bible starts at year 6,000, or negative 6,000, and that's that. I didn't think they would, they had actually had, although that, it isn't really, you know, six degrees of separation from that. I guess that's, that's just a more eloquent way of saying the same thing, but I don't know, at least I, at least I learned something when Ken, Ken Allen's talking. Yeah, um, there are, uh, there are a lot of problems with young earth creationism generally, obviously, and we dealt with uh, quite a few of them on our episode, our two-parter, uh, Common Creationist Claims, uh, from last year. One of the things that you have to understand about young earth creationism is that it requires a deceptive creator. Um, it, it, it actually requires that, that God is, uh, is deceptive because we see, when we investigate the universe scientifically, we see an appearance of age. So not only do we have very reliable uh, dating methods that show uh, an old earth, um, including uh, radiometric dating, tree ring uh, dating, uh, you know, dendrochronology. Uh, we have uh, sedimentary layers, and all of these are overlapping areas of dating that verify each other mutually. You have a glaciation, uh, sorry, uh, you have layers in uh, uh, glaciers, uh, and and all of that. So we have copious evidence that the universe is in fact old. But one of the one of the most Obvious examples is the fact that we see, and we're going to talk about this uh, in just a little bit, we see stars that are more than 6,000 light years away, right? So that means that because the speed of light in a void is a known quantity, we know how long it would take the light from those stars to reach us. So if the universe is no more than 6,000 years old, any stars that are farther away than 6,000 light years, or 6,000, was it 6,000, like 16 now or something, according to Bishop Usher? If you see stars that are more than 6,000 uh, light years away, uh, the light from those stars could not have reached us by, uh, by now, because since the moment of creation, they would not have had enough, uh, the light would not have had enough time to reach us. So we couldn't see them. So we should see sort of this dark shell surrounding us uh, at the 6,000 light year mark, right? Assuming all the stars were popped into existence at the moment of creation. Now, there are various responses to that, that creationists will pop up, all of which essentially 
argue that, that God gives the universe the impression of age. But this is inherently deceptive, right? So creationists may say, well, the uh, speed of light uh, has not always been constant. You know, it used to be much faster, so the light had time to get there. But there's no explanation. That's sort of a hand-wavy, ad hoc explanation. That's the same thing they, um, that he used is, well, Bill Nye, you weren't there. So how do you know that the that potassium decays into argon, or is it the other way around? I forget. I'd have to look at my periodic table. Yeah, the 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 were you there? Uh, the were you yeah, there? Yeah, like argument. how can we effectively um, guarantee that you know all of these dating that these atoms have been consistently decaying for you know their entire existence? Well, the the thing about the were you there argument, which is a uh, which is a creationist classic. Uh, is that uh, it assumes that eyewitness testimony is uh, that that like firsthand eyewitness testimony is not only reliable, which, which you know it, it isn't really, uh, that it is the only legitimate reliable form of evidence, <laughs> which we know it's probably one of the worst. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so, so the were you there argument is um, is not a good one. But let's look at it this way. The speed of light is constant, you know, within a given medium. The speed of light is constant as far as we can tell. Uh, there's no reason to think that it changed uh, in the past. Um, now, you can, uh, you can assert that it did, but then you'll need to provide some evidence for that. Inferences based on an old book, assuming that, that old book is word-for-word word true, which we know it isn't for plenty of other reasons, uh, just won't cut it. Now, one of the other arguments isn't that the speed of light was, uh, changed in any way. Uh, one of the more popular creationist responses is that God created the light of these stars already in transit. So he creates the, the stars 6,000 years ago, but then he's like, ah, oh, nobody's going to be able to see how awesome these stars look, so I'd better, I better basically fast-forward that light uh, most of the way to Earth so that people can enjoy it, which is another sort of... Uh, ad hoc, you know, hand-wavy argument, uh, but it also raises a whole bunch of problems because what it means is that we, we have observed supernovae uh, that are more than 6,000 light-years away, and what that means is that those stars could not possibly have ever existed. God has to have created an entire false history for the universe, basically, right? Because if the light was created in transit, then and the the stars are more than six thousand light years away. That means that they have to have exploded prior, uh, gone supernova prior to the creation of the actual universe. See what I'm saying there, Greg? No, you lost me. Okay, so we see a supernova. Oh, right. So we see based like the remnants of a supernova, like a nebula or something. Or e e even no, e even in the sky right now. Okay. Let's say you look up and you see a star go nova, looking through a big telescope or what have you. If that star is more than six thousand, let's say that star is seven thousand light years away. Mm -hmm. Okay. What that means is that star went supernova seven thousand years. Yes, now more than uh, yeah seven thousand years ago. More. Which means that if the universe was created six thousand years ago, that star that you were looking at before it went supernova, literally never existed. The light that you were seeing from that star prior to it going supernova was light from a star that never existed. 
because this is the whole false history thing, right? Right. So if you if you have a star that is more than uh, 6,000 light years away, uh, God will have, according to this creationist argument, created the light from that star in transit. However, if that star goes supernova and it's more than 6,000 light years away, because the universe is only 6,000 years old, God created light from the star in transit, but never actually created the star. He just created, like, supernova remnants. Gotcha. So this whole idea of God creating, like, a false history, giving the appearance of age, is often illustrated by the absurdity that is uh, Last Tuesdayism. Right, yeah. Which states that the, the universe was created in its entirety last Tuesday with the appearance of age, including you and all of your memories. Uh, and it's it's unfalsifiable. It's the uh, it's the dragon in Carl Sagan's garage, right? You can you can always throw throw up sort of a hand wavy ad hoc explanation for any evidence to the contrary. So these arguments are unscientific and and not useful, but entertaining. I see. So from from your perspective as a a scientist, right? You're a computer scientist, if I'm not mistaken. I, I guess. I'm a, I'm a, I call myself a software developer. My, I have a bachelor's of science um, from U of M with a major in computer science. Good enough. However, I have uh, published in scientific publications in the field of human-robot interaction. But that is basically psychology. Which some would say is a science. But... <laughs> yeah, I'll, say, I'll say it's a science. But uh, what I'm saying is that I, I don't call myself a scientist. Uh, I leave that to other people because it, it, it's not what I do on a day-to-day basis. Okay. I'm a science cheerleader. Just like me. Yay. So what would you say about just the entire concept of debating people with less than realistic belief sets? The question I'm trying to get at is, you know, should these people be addressed? Should they get a forum to spout their creationist, anti-vax climate change denying nonsense hmm. and, and have and take the time of actual scientists because uh, I'll tell you I was super super discouraged the day after with those what was it 20 some questions for Bill Nye they those guys those people seriously had gotcha checkmate atheist smirks on their faces and I, and I was looking at them like are you kidding me did you did you not <laughs> listen to a single thing that was said uh so that's that's a that's a big question, and I think that it depends. I mean, when we're talking about science, talking about science is different than talking about a, a philosophical or theological proposition. I think that uh, debates on the existence of God, for example, are interesting. N- not to everybody, but I, I enjoy them. Metaphysical or philosophical formal debates are they can be fun. Uh, I tend to much prefer uh, discussions, and one of the things that I don't like about the debate format, and I know Matt Dillahunty has commented on this uh, many times in the past, is that it typically does not allow the participants to directly ask each other questions. And it does allow ample opportunity for participants to ignore each other to a large degree, uh, which, from what I understand, is uh, is what happened here uh, a lot. So uh, for uh, philosophical questions, yes, absolutely, I love debates. Um, for scientific questions, I think my my opinion has evolved a little bit, as it were. So for this debate, those who went in creationists came out creationists. And those who went in accepting evolution came out accepting evolution. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure that in some people a seed was planted, right? There was a, maybe a seed of doubt. And in a lot of skeptical endeavors, that's really all we can ask for. A lot, nobody's, it's very rare for somebody to change their mind in the moment. 
especially you know everybody gets that adrenaline rush right and you uh you 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 hunker down but you know eventually things uh, you start thinking over things and you some people can change their mind but not only did those who went in creationists come out creationists and uh vice versa uh, those who went in thinking this debate was a bad idea largely seemed to have come out thinking the debate was a bad idea while those who thought it was a great idea tended to think that bill nye did a great job um i staked out uh the position in the past that uh, we shouldn't engage anti-science cranks in formal debates. Discussions, yes, absolutely, but not uh, a formal debate. And the reasons that I gave, uh, be because I was in the past asked to debate John Feeks, who is the curator of the Creation Museum here in Winnipeg, right, right. and I refused. Um, now, there are, there are a couple of reasons for that. The first is that creationists or global warming deniers, or which is Bill, Bill Nye's next uh, debate, apparently, or uh, vaccine deniers or what have you, they tend to want to, to debate people who are not experts in their particular field that they'll be discussing, uh, like me, for example, or like Bill Nye. I mean, Bill Nye is an engineer. Uh, he's a science promoter, and he is uh, a great teacher, but he's he's not necessarily a, a, an expert specifically in evolution. And he's also, and I think this came out in the debate a fair amount, not exceptionally familiar with the strategies employed by creationists. Uh, not only did, did Ken Ham not bring out a lot of good arguments, because let's be honest, there are, there aren't any. He didn't even bring out a large number of the really common creationist claims. Uh, you know, if you were reading uh, along at the index to creationist claims on um, uh, Talk Origins, uh, you know, you could find basically everything he said in that index. There was nothing new, but he he you know he only hit a couple of them. And I think that people who had read over that list a few times. Uh, and uh, uh, dug a little more deeply, probably could have whacked a couple of those down uh, faster. So that's the first thing. Creationists tend to want to debate people who aren't experts uh, in the specific field. The second issue is that formal debates, as opposed to informal discussions, put those of us who are beholden to reality at a significant disadvantage. This is uh, the Gish-Gallup problem, right? So debates are often more about scoring rhetorical points than about getting to the heart of the matter, figuring out what's true. And it often takes much more time to refute a falsehood than it does to just state it. <laughs> um, so it can take several minutes for, for the proponent of science to thoroughly address each piece of misinformation. And often a couple pieces will slip through the cracks, giving their, their opponent the opportunity to say, aha, so as you didn't address these three points, obviously that's the case. <laughs> it is said, of course, that a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. So that's the, the second issue with these formal debates, the Gish-Gallop problem. It's uh, much easier to throw, throw out a bunch of nonsense than it is to actually address that nonsense. And the third issue, and I think that this is the issue that most people have a problem with when talking about these sorts of debates, is that a formal debate can present a false equivalency uh, between, in this case, creationism and evolution. This is the Fox News fair and balanced problem, right? Evolution is a well-vetted scientific theory which makes testable predictions and is the basis for much of modern biology and medicine. It is independently validated by several fields of science, including but not limited to archaeology, geology, and genetics. 
Creationism, on the other hand, is an unfalsifiable religious proposition that ignores scientific evidence to advance a regressive anti-intellectual agenda. So a formal debate can legitimize the manufactured controversy between evolution and creationism, a controversy that doesn't actually exist in science, because you're giving these two people equal time to discuss their views. So, all of that in mind, I think I've come over a little bit to the idea that these sorts of debates might be worth having. It's tough. I'm not settled. But I do find myself a little bit persuaded by Phil Plait's thoughts on the matter. Uh, the, the fact is, there is a huge public controversy over creationism in the United States, and to a lesser extent up here in Canada. And to just disengage from the whole debate probably isn't likely to do much good. Uh, if you don't confront the misinformation head-on, it's hard to see how anyone would have the opportunity to find out the good information if they're already on the other side. Yeah, well... Well, why don't we uh, uh, hit a couple of these out of the uh, out of the park here real quick. So do you want to talk about this uh, reality show, Snake Handler? Well, um, uh, the only... Um... Well, I guess we can just do basic opinions on him. I mean, do I think he's hor or do I think he was horribly misguided? Absolutely. Well, let's let's uh, let's give the audience uh, a little bit of background um, in case they didn't hear about it. So, uh, so Jamie Coots uh, was a Kentucky pastor uh, who was into this sort of uh, Church of God uh, snake handling uh, thing, and he was uh, handling a rattlesnake during the Saturday night service at his church, Full Gospel Tabernacle in Jesus Name Church in Middlesbrough, uh, when he was bitten by the rattlesnake. Uh, he subsequently died. So it's sad, um, and one of the saddest things about it is that uh, despite the fact that this sort of thing actually happens embarrassingly frequently, uh, it's probably not going to change anybody's mind about snake handling. But I wanted to uh, to talk about uh, snake handling a little bit. First of all, I'm just going to give you uh, a couple of other uh, uh, pre uh, preachers who have died uh, from snake handling. Uh, I'll uh, get this. I got this list from Rational Wiki. So, uh, 1973, Kentucky, 72-year-old Shirley Wagers is killed by a snake bite at the Pentecostal Holiness Church. Uh, 1985, Tennessee, Charles Herman, Prince of the uh, Apostolic Church of God is attacked by a rattlesnake after drinking strychnine. He refuses medical attention and dies 36 hours later. Uh, 1999 and 1995 in Alabama and Kentucky, John Wayne Punkin Brown was bitten on the hand by a yellow timber rattler during a worship service. Having suffered previous snake bites, he preached for 15 minutes, then suddenly fell over dead. His wife, Melinda Brown, met a similar fate several years prior. His five children were subsequently turned over to the custody of their grandparents, who also run a similar snake church in Tennessee. Uh, April 2004, in Virginia, Reverend Dwayne Long of the Arthur's Chapel Church of Rose Hill was killed by a rattlesnake during Easter services. May 2012, West Virginia, I remember this one, Mark Wolford, uh, a uh, pastor... Uh, in Virginia, uh, sat near a recently handled timber rattler and received a fatal bite to the leg. His father was also a pastor and also died from snake bites 39 years earlier. Uh, February uh, 2014, we've got Jamie Coots, uh, who is a preacher in Middleborough, died after being bitten by a snake during church service. So, 
that is, th th those are just a few of the many, many, many preachers, men of God, uh, killed by snakes. So what's the deal? Well, the relevant passages are in the book of Mark, uh, that's the earliest uh, gospel, uh, Mark 16, uh, 17 to 18, and I quote, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. It's interesting to note uh, that Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, so that includes the uh, so-called Great Commission, which I just uh, read a portion of, uh, Mark uh, 16, 9 to 20 are not actually found in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. And most biblical scholars agree that these passages are not original. That is to say, they are later additions to the Gospel. Uh, the original uh, gospel uh, ended uh, at Mark 16, uh, verse 8. So, these rather dedicated Pentecostal folk who handle snakes and speak in tongues and heal the sick actually have little in the way of biblical justification for the practice. Uh, Rash uh, Rational Wiki uh, also points out, uh, and I quote, Snakes used in handling rituals rarely bite. But the main reason for this is no miracle. The snakes are often kept in overcrowded conditions with little food or water. Snakes mistreated in this way are more passive, and when they do bite, the venom is less potent. Oh, so they're cooking the books while they while they do it too. That's interesting. Well, but perhaps they're not doing it intentionally. It's just a uh, it's just a side effect of being cramped and malnourished. Uh, you know, it's probably more negligence than anything. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, so I was just saying uh, that although you have left Winnipeg for uh, uh, sunnier climes in uh, Calgary, you uh, b because you've left Winnipeg, you will be disappointed uh, that uh, uh, you won't get to see Neil deGrasse Tyson when he comes to town uh, next month. That's right. I, um, I was pretty excited when I saw that. Um, speaking of which, when is his new Cosmos coming out? I've heard Cosmos, Cosmos, Cosmos for... Uh, it what seems like an eternity, and I'm like, well, come on, when, when's it happening? It is coming out really soon. As of uh, this episode going live, it'll be like two weeks. Uh, so, uh, so the new Cosmos is coming out on March 9th. Well, I will search by PBR guide and see mm -hmm. if I can. Uh, usually, it's not. Well, March 9th isn't that far away. Oh. I'm assuming PBS. Uh, no, actually. So this is uh, this is a joint production between Fox and the National Geographic Channel. Oh, I see. Okay. Well done. So uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson is coming to Winnipeg for uh, The Sky is Not the Limit, uh, which is a public lex lecture and Q&A. It'll be at the uh, University of Manitoba uh, in the Investors Group Athletic Center. It's on Thursday, March 13th at 4 p.m., It'll go just over an hour. Doors open at 3 p.m., and it is rush seating. Now, the athletic center is huge. I don't know if they're having it in the main area or, you know, in the in the bleachers or, or what, but uh, seating hopefully won't be too limited, but I plan to attend. So if you uh, see me there, say hi. So uh, where does that leave us? Old stars. Right. One in particular. Right. 
So, do you want to tell us about uh, about this old star there? Well, Greg? yes, I was sorry. I was just breaking for a coughing fit. Um, I'm a little oh, raspy, uh, as you know. Anyone listening to this might be able to tell soon. In any event, uh, we have a new record breaker uh, was found. The oldest star uh, in the universe, and one that beats the previous record holder by a about 400 million years. So we have a star um, that was born. 13.6 billion years ago, which pegs it to just one or 200 million years after the Big Bang, which uh, which I find to be quite interesting for a number number of reasons. You know, mm-hmm. one one thing I'm not sure, you know, on its size or or you know gravity or wh- where its Goldilocks zone would be. But if you could imagine a star that has you know a lifespan of 13.6 billion years, uh, the the second amazing thing is that it's relatively close as well. But one question that I had, so if I'm not mistaken, my favorite star that uh, hopefully goes supernova in my lifetime, Betelgeuse or Betelgeuse, yeah. whichever, is it not also 6,000 light years away? Or is it, I just, I was really just itching to get that, you know, just to be on record on the internet saying that, that was my favorite star that you know, I hope goes Nova, right? You know why, right? Because it'd be like, a, it'd be a second sun in our sky for, it'd be basically Tatooine on Earth, right? Well, what, why, why do you say that? Why Why would it be uh, like a second sun? Well, because sun? it's so huge, um, and it's so close. If When it goes Nova, for about three months, I believe, we will have uh, two suns on our planet. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, it's not 6,000 light years. It's like... Uh... Uh, 600 light years Oh, 600. Away. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's one order of magnitude. That's perfectly reasonable. So why don't we move on to the uh, the last news item real quick. This is from The Independent in the UK. And the headline is, Denmark bans kosher and halal slaughter, as minister says, animal rights come before religion. So uh, this is interesting. So what's happening here is that this new law, uh, which is being widely denounced as anti-Semitic, is, is effectively banning the slaughter of animals by kosher or halal, um, uh, uh, using uh, kosher or halal practices. And this comes after years of uh, campaigning by animal welfare activists, apparently. Um, and the the reason this is being banned is because uh, European regulations require that animals be stunned before slaughtered, um, so that they basically suffer less, uh, is the idea. However, uh, in order for meat to be considered kosher uh, under Jewish law or halal under Islamic law, the animal must be conscious when killed. And I have heard a variety of explanations for that, but be that as it may, this is being hailed as a win by some animal welfare and animal rights activists, and uh, conversely, it is being hailed as an infringement of religious freedom, uh, limiting the rights of Muslims uh, and Jews uh, by uh, religious leaders and um uh, minority advocacy groups, and uh, I don't think that those two positions are inconsistent. And f- full disclosure for our listeners, um, as some of you may be aware, uh, I have been a vegetarian for several years, um, and I agree 
that halal and kosher slaughter methods are unethical and probably uh, more ethically problematic than most methods of animal slaughter uh, used in Europe. Um, that said, I would be astonished if this bill weren't prompted, at least in part, by religious prejudice, uh, specifically against uh, Muslim immigrants. Uh, and I see that as very troubling, uh, especially given the bill's apparent focus on doing away with the ethically questionable practices mandated by religious minorities, while leaving other ethically problematic practices in other parts of the food industry untouched. So I am, uh, I am always in favor of limiting the suffering of my fellow living beings, and that is largely why I personally choose to not eat meat. However, I find this law, when taken in the context of what is going on in Europe today, troubling, to say the very least. I agree. It's, um, I haven't met or spoken to a European. Granted, you know, I'm not a globetrotter. Uh, I rely on Europeans to sort of walk in f across my path. But, you know, I do know a few people who have emigrated from the Netherlands and Germany and, and France. And, you know, you meet them, right? Like co-workers, people, people you mm -hmm. just meet. And of those who I've gotten to know well enough to get into the sort of religious slash political discussions, not one of them has avoided the topic of not being, what, sorry, that's a very clumsy way to, to go about it, but there, there is a deep, deep, deep concern of Islamic culture or, or the Islamification of Europe, and a lot of these people uh, are, are reacting negatively to it, and I think that's probably, it goes back to uh, the Quebec Charter of, of Values as well. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. think it's really, it's not targeting Christian crosses, um, or even, you know, Jewish yarmulkes or, or, or anything of the sort. I think it is specifically targeted towards, um, worshippers of Islam. Well, although, although our, our, uh, Jews are affected because it affects, uh, uh, kosher slaughters as well. Well, true. I mean, presumably with the Quebec Charter of Values, people who wear uh, giant big Catholic crosses and V-neck uh, T-shirts are also affected, but I don't. I don't think that's the target. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's very similar in the sense that it is the government ostensibly trying to to put in place a uh, a policy that would be laudable. So, uh, in the Quebec Charter of Values, that would be a secular government. And in this case, it would be less uh, less suffering for animals who are killed to be eaten. That law probably has some sinister motives uh, behind it, and it also serves to further marginalize uh, minorities who already have a tough enough time of it. So uh, <laughs> this is also further complicated by the fact that Denmark recently made headlines when the Copenhagen Zoo slaughtered a uh, surplus uh, young male giraffe in front of spectators and fed it to their lions. <laughs> did you hear about that, Greg? I did, yeah. It seemed, you know, unnecessary. If nothing else, that seems like an inopportune time to to be, uh, uh, for that to happen in the context of these animal rights discussions. Yeah. All right. So uh, I'm happy to see animals treated less horrendously, but I, uh, 
uh, I would also like to see religious minorities treated less horrendously. <laughs> so, uh, shall we leave it at that? I think we shall. Do you want to do a what are you reading segment? Well, sure. Not that Dan Carlin would need uh, any publicity sent uh, his way. Well, I guess I'm sure he'd be grateful for anything he got. But I've recently discovered a couple of podcasts, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History and Dan Carlin's Common Sense, both produced by uh, Dan Carlin. Absolutely amazing content. I figured I'd just give it a chance at, a, at the recommendation from a friend. On my drive out from Christmas, I started with the five-part history of the Mongols and then rolled into Prophets of Doom and finally Countdown to Armageddon. So um, over the, f you know, 13 or 14 hours it took me to drive from Calgary to, uh, to just south of Winnipeg uh, for Christmas, I think I uh, traversed, um, I don't know, couple thousand years of human history uh, was pretty good. I mean, he's got one of those voices that could make even the most dull topic sound enchanting. So he's got two giant five-part series, one on the Mongols and one on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, as well as the rise of the Frankish and Germanic sort of uh, areas of Western Europe. Basically, what happened in Western Europe, or the Western Roman Empire, after that half of the Roman Empire fell, as well as the engaging uh, story of uh, religious conflict and strife in Munster, Germany, in, I think, the 1500s. And, I mean, these podcasts are long enough that they actually cross the line into audiobook uh, territory. Just amazing stuff. Well, good. So, for my part, I have been reading uh, two books, currently reading both Half Empty by David Rakoff uh, and Bad Pharma by Ben Goldacre. Uh, Half Empty is a series of essays that are sort of loosely clustered sort of stories of David Rakoff's life centering around pessimism. And he talks about in one of the earlier, uh, one of the earliest essays, actually, I think the first one, uh, the idea of strategic pessimism or defensive pessimism, um, which is a, uh, a psychological uh, tactic that I actually employ in my day-to-day -day life quite a lot. And it is, it basically, defensive pessimism basically involves expecting the worst and preparing for the worst so that when the worst happens, you're prepared, but when the best happens, you're pleasantly surprised. And in my view, it's a win-win. So, uh, you know, being, being a pessimist probably won't win you a lot of friends, but it, I don't know, I think it's a pretty good way to live. <laughs> so half empty, uh, I'm enjoying it. Uh, Bad Pharma by Ben Goldacre. Ben Goldacre is awesome. He's a doctor in the UK. He has previously written, a, uh, written uh, Bad Science, uh, which uh, largely takes shots at herbalists and natural, you know, alternative medicine practitioners and uh, nutritionists, uh, the quack kind, not the, not the dietitian kind. And Bad Pharma takes uh, a similarly um, a pessimistic, I guess, in a sense, look at the pharmaceutical industry and the, the problems that they have uh, with good science. And it is engaging it can get a little dry at times, but I find it really, uh, really interesting. It goes into a lot of detail, uh, and it uh, you don't need to be a scientist to understand the concepts that he's talking about because he lays everything out really well. 
uh, he he is a big proponent of meta analyses and, and especially the Cochrane collaboration, uh, uh, ra uh, rather than single large randomized controlled trials. This is a in contrast to Mark Chrislip, who does the Quack Watch podcast. Uh, sorry, not the Quack Watch podcast. The Quack Cast. Mark Chrislip does the Quack Cast. And Mark Chrislip also writes for Science-Based Medicine. Mark Chrislip is not a fan of meta-analyses and the Cochrane collaboration. Uh, he is, however, a fan of large randomized controlled trials, and there are lots of interesting arguments for, in either direction uh, that we won't go into here. But, generally speaking, Bad Pharma is a great read, and I hope to do a podcast episode within, the, uh, within this year about uh, publication bias and bad pharma. Cool. Well, I think we are uh, about to wrap it up for tonight, then. Perfect. You've been listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. If you'd like to suggest a topic for the show, or if you have any questions or comments, send us an email at leeepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. If you like what we're doing and want to show your support, please leave us a review on iTunes, follow us on Twitter or Facebook at slash leeepodcast, or share the show with a friend. Our music is produced by the very talented Ian Leon. <laughs>